So after those first couple of weeks, what I began to do was, was to imagine, I'm still doing this, just imagining the faces of our friends in the congregation that we normally see on Sunday morning, kind of beyond that camera. to the BMPC Summer Podcast, a limited podcast series from Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church for the season when we cannot be together as a church, but we can still be the church together. We hope that this podcast will be a little piece of the church community that you can take with you in the car or on a walk, or even if you're able to travel this summer, as we look forward to a time soon when we can all be together again. I'm Rebecca Kirkpatrick, one of your pastors, and I'm grateful today to be able to share with you a conversation that I had with Agus Norfleet, our pastor and head of staff, on the work of preaching in this season. I'm so glad you're the first uh, interview that we're going to do on our new BMPC Summer podcast. Are you excited to be here with me? I'm thrilled to be here with you. And appreciate the invitation. I appreciate the creativity uh, that you've um, given to thinking about how to do these educational events over the course of the summer. That first uh, week that we shut down, I had to preach. And so we didn't really know what we were doing. And so I preached to an empty sanctuary and tried not to think about it again. But you've been preaching in an empty sanctuary now for uh, two over two months and so um, we're going to talk a little bit about preaching today and what it's like preaching in the season that we're in right now so what's it like preaching to an empty sanctuary well first of all let me say that I am really grateful that you were the first one to preach after we shut down as you remember I was scheduled to participate in the installation of John Wilkinson who's a new pastor at Chestnut Hill and a friend of mine. So I had the opportunity to see you do it before I had to do it. And that helped, and I think. Fi- and fix the way I did it and no. do it better. Um, I will admit that at the very beginning, after we shut down, we were still all kind of in a state of shock and overwhelmed uh, by how we were going to have to become a virtual church and, and with so little time to become a virtual church. And I remember pretty clearly that the first time that I was speaking across an empty sanctuary to the camera on the that's installed in the balcony, you know, not far from where the choir is normally sit, seated, um, that it felt sad and uh, mm-hmm. vacant, mm-hmm. and it was a little bit disconcerting. But I'll say this. After that experience, when we were first in this pandemic, we received, as you remember, so many expressions of gratitude from people. I mean, mm-hmm. my the first sermon I preached was over, and within an hour, I had probably received, you know, 20 emails and 10 texts from people who just thanked me for the church yeah. continuing to be church together. So after those first couple of weeks, what I began to do was was to imagine, and I'm still doing this, just imagining the faces of our friends in the congregation that we normally see on Sunday morning, kind of beyond that camera. So pretty immediately, I was able to um, transcend the empty space in my imagination and, and consider the fact that our friends in the congregation were attending to what we were putting online in a, virtual worship service. Mm -hmm. 
we it's Thursday when we're recording this, so we just recorded sermons this morning, and Rachel, before she got ready to record, said, I've trained myself my whole preaching career to look to the left and look to the right and look down in the front and look to the back, and so it's just, it just feels different to just be preaching in one singular direction, right, right? when you're in that space. Right. It's just kind of a new way to think about it. Right, and, and that's where my imagining yeah. the congregation being behind that camera has me kind of focused in that one direction mm -hmm. as opposed to all over the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. I did the thing for her today that I did for you at the beginning where I sat up by the camera. Oh, so you that did? She, I didn't know you were up there. Yeah, just yeah. for her this week, just so she could see where the kids... It's hard to see the camera from the pulpit, and to, and to be that um, far away. So it's changing how you're delivering your sermons or how you're sort of um, um, preaching in the space, but is it changing, you find it's changing the way you're writing sermons? Yes, um, and I've been in conversation uh, with my preaching colleagues around the country about this as well as with our team here at Bryn Mawr. And I think there's kind of a universal understanding that when the worship experience is virtual and people are, are pulling this up on a computer or an iPad or even their telephone to their cell phone to um, spend that time in worship with us, that we don't have the same amount of time. People aren't standing mm -hmm. up and sitting down and watching the children go in and out and looking at the stained glass windows and flipping through the hymnal, they're singly focused on that screen. And so I think that we've been appropriate in not trying to recreate an hour-long worship service because right. I don't think that people's attention spans uh, are the same when we're not in the room together. Mm -hmm. So what that has done for me is I know that I've shortened my sermons. Mm -hmm. um, instead of you know 17 or 18 minutes, I think they're 11, 12, 13 minutes. Um, and that's required kind of um, an additional layer of editing. They are more focused. They probably have less illustrative material in mm -hmm. them. Um, and I'm being as careful in the editing process of each offering as I am in um, presenting the content that I feel called um, to present based on the text Mm -hmm. and the week in which the sermon is being crafted. Mm -hmm. So do you think that'll impact once we are back together, which we will be back together someday, that that'll change sort of how you preach and think about preaching when we're together again? Are you suggesting that you would <laughs> love for me to continue <laughs> preaching shorter sermons? No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I actually have thought about this quite a bit, and I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to come... Um, through this experience, um, doing it exactly like we were doing it before, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure that uh, the, that I won't um, go back into some old patterns of the way mm -hmm. um, I deliver a sermon. One of the things that's missing is um, feeling the emotional reaction of people. So. Right. Um, when the congregation is, when the sanctuary is filled with people, there are moments in each sermon where I pause because I expect 
some kind of reaction, mm -hmm. whether it's just people living in the silence of what has just been said mm -hmm. at a moment where I, I really feel like people need to engage with the proclamation, or if I anticipate that I, there will be laughter mm -hmm. or even um, tears uh, in, a, in a moving story for that, for example, um, that's what's missing now right. that we will recover when we get back together. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason the sermons themselves are more focused in this virtual way because I don't anticipate any kind of uh, a visceral emotional reaction from the empty pews that I do a full congregation. Right, yeah. Well, we talk about that a lot because we have two services normally, right? So that you preach it with humans once at eight and you can kind of feel after you've preached a sermon that, oh, maybe that didn't connect. Or once I was saying it in front of people, I realized I need to change it. And so sometimes some of us will make quick changes <laughs> in between, right? Because the experience of doing it with people kind of makes you hear it in a, a different way. In a different way. Yeah. And... Um... Preaching in the chapel is also different than preaching right. in the sanctuary because uh, the sanctuary is such a big space that you have to kind of fill the pulpit uh, physically as well as with your um, voice trying to reach the far corners of the transepts and the right. balconies in the back of the sanctuary. Yeah. On normal, I think you and I are both similar in that we practice our sermons in the spaces before we before Sunday. So do you practice on a normal, in normal times, you practice in the sanctuary and in the chapel um, for any given sermon? No, normally there's more activity in the sanctuary, and I find that the chapel is more frequently um, empty and quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, the folks who take care of the facilities and right. Jeff and Edward are in and out of the sanctuary on a regular basis. So normally when I stand... Um, in a pulpit before I do a final editing of my sermon, uh, I do that in the chapel. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I do that, I've, I've trained myself to uh, um, actually read aloud my sermon to, into an empty space uh, is, an is part of my editorial process. You can, you know this, yeah. you can type a sentence that is right. physically impossible to say. Right. It's nearly impossible to say three words in a row that begin with W. Mm -hmm. Or if you have too many S's strung together, mm -hmm. um, your words run into each other. And so uh, reading it out loud uh, helps with the delivery of it ultimately, as well as the editorial process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, do you have, like, what is it... For you, I mean, I know what my process is. What is it for you? Do you have the same process you use every time when you move from scriptural text to sermon text that you kind of go through those sort of steps? When I was in seminary, my preaching professor said the first step in writing a sermon is you read the text and then you go through a period of whimsical drifting <laughs> where you imagine the text and just sort of think about the text. So I always, I never do that, but I always think about him saying the first step is always whimsical drifting, whatever that's supposed to be. But I just wonder if you have sort of steps that you go through or if every sermon is a little different. Well, I, I, I'm sure that I have established patterns and there are both uh, patterns for how I craft a sermon in a given week, but I also like to think about preaching over a period of time 
So whenever I begin a new season, say Advent or Lent or even what I'm going to do in the summer or after Easter, for example, I not only think about one sermon at a time, I think about a mm -hmm. series of sermons. Mm -hmm. So I like to uh, make sure that in a span of a month or six weeks, there um, are a variety of different kinds of proclamations that are offered uh, and that there's a balance between what I consider sort of sermons that are pastoral in nature mm -hmm. and then, then sermons that are more prophetic in nature or sermons that elicit a, a response to action. Mm -hmm. um, so I make sure that there is that kind of pattern over a period of time. And um, I would just give you an example of this recently in these post-Easter and through Easter and the Sundays after Easter at the beginning of this um, season of isolation brought on by the pandemic, I kind of felt like I was saying the same thing over and over again. God is with us in this. This is an unusual season, and we are not used to being apart from one another, but we are unified in mm -hmm. that we know wherever we are, God is with us in this. I'm sure that I hope that my hearers didn't think, well, that's the same sermon she preached last week, because <laughs> each, each of those sermons were coming out of a text, but I got to a point where I felt like I needed to to think more carefully about not just proclaiming God is with us in this, but how can we respond? Mm -hmm. um, how can we uh, take this word and this charge as disciples of Jesus Christ and live that out in our lives where we are? So in these last weeks, I have moved from uh, preaching sermons that I would consider sort of pastoral in nature to sermons that... I would hope would elicit um, a response uh, that people would hear a sermon and say, okay, how can I take that charge as a disciple of Jesus Christ and help someone who is hungry or help my neighbor who may be in need or uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During the week um, with each sermon that mm -hmm. I preach, I typically have chosen a text before I get to a week and I read it, I reread it, I meditate on it. I typically will read it out loud and listen to it. And then I have a way of beginning uh, to kind of put chunks of material together that then end up in this editorial process that I do to make it flow from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have an outline. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of a classic way of preaching in my youth, mm -hmm. that a path, the three points in a poem kind right. of preaching. <laughs> I have always been more narrative and mm -hmm. uh, begin to kind of tell the story of whatever it is the text is saying and then weaving in stories of our lives or what's going on in the community in conversation with the text. Um, and that's how I go about the process from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. What's the connection for you? I mean, I know, like, so for me, I remember as a child sitting um, in church and listening to a sermon and imagining myself preaching from that pulpit, you know, and saying, oh, well, if I was preaching today, what would I have said on this text, you know, and, and sort of imagining me being in the pulpit um, long before I ever thought about becoming a pastor, right? So when I look back at that, I think, not that I, you know, that I just sort of 
think, oh, I kind of imagined a preaching voice or a preach, you know, being in the pulpit as something that I wanted to do, um, and then grew into feeling called to ministry. And so I'm just interested, you know, what does it mean for you to feel called as a preacher and a pastor, and when did you sort of um, first feel like you were being called to, to be a preacher, especially? If that makes sense. Yeah, I appreciate the question. Interestingly, uh, when I was a child, I had very little experience of women preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I did grow up in a community of, of Union Seminary in Richmond, and we did have seminary students who worked in our churches, and occasionally uh, one of them uh, might have preached uh, who was a female. But when I went to seminary, I could probably count on, on one hand how many women I'd ever heard preach. So I'm not sure that I began thinking that... Uh, preaching would have been a call for myself um, even as I was going to seminary. When I went mm. to seminary, I thought that I would probably go on and do further continuing education and get into a doctoral program and maybe teach or mm -hmm. end up in some kind of pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. It was really in the process of having opportunities to preach, both in my classes in seminary, leading chapel in seminary, and serving churches in internships that I began uh, feeling called to it by doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who would be, um, as you think about sort of the preaching voices that you heard, you know, that as you were um, either growing up or then being in ministry, um, that you sort of think maybe influenced your sort of preaching voice or maybe influenced it in the opposite way? <laughs> to say, I knew I didn't want to um, sound like this, or I don't know if there are preaching voices that, you know, of other preachers that you kind of have experienced and, and sort of felt moved by them or influenced by them. I was influenced by my preaching professors at Union Seminary. Uh, in those days, you didn't get a PhD in homiletics. There wasn't even such a degree program. Right. Uh, the seminaries called outstanding preachers from church congregations and invited them to come and teach preaching. So mm -hmm. I was uh, influenced by Welford Hobby, who was my first preaching professor, and Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, mm -hmm. uh, who was on the, in the biblical faculty at Union but also taught preaching and was quite a fine preacher herself. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had the opportunity to spend an intern year at a church after I graduated from seminary when I was contemplating whether I wanted to go into the church or go into further um, uh, graduate school. And I served a church in Charlotte, North Carolina with a really extraordinary preacher in Lewis Patrick. And mm -hmm. he probably influenced my preaching um, as much as anybody else. His uh, best friend was Frederick Beekner. Mm. <laughs> uh, Frederick Beekner had has dedicated a couple of his books to Lewis Patrick and told stories about him in some of his books. Um, so I was in the company of Frederick Beekner during those years. Um, and then as I began to really kind of live into the call of being a preacher, I was uh, being a preacher. I was influenced by outstanding preachers in the denomination and in the. Um, um, country, people like Fred Craddock. Mm -hmm. And um, I followed some preachers who were early at getting their sermons online. I read John mm -hmm. Buchanan's sermons from Fourth Church Chicago and 
John Walton's sermons when he was at Westminster Church in Wilmington, Delaware, and then when he was uh, at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. So as I began to feel called into preaching, uh, I made it a habit of reading sermons of a mm-hmm. lot of other people. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is after I began my work in the church, uh, I was in, a, in two churches in Atlanta Presbytery in the neighborhood of Columbia Seminary. So it wasn't just influenced by um, academics in the field of preaching, but also became good friends with a number of people who were in biblical studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most influential people was Walter Brueggemann at Columbia Seminary, and um, um, some uh, Kathleen O'Connor, who was in Old Testament at Columbia Seminary, and some of their biblical work was also formative mm-hmm. in how I developed as a preacher. Can I get you to tell that story that you like to tell about when you preached in my home uh, congregation in Pittsburgh? Oh, gosh. I've never, <laughs> I was preaching for the Covenant Network, and um, I was nervous about it um, because I knew that on the agenda of the preaching, I was between Walter Brueggemann and Brian Blunt. <laughs> Brian um, was not yet president of the Union Seminary. He was teaching Old Testament, I mean New Testament at, at Princeton Seminary. So I was preaching a service between a keynote address of Walter Brueggemann and then following my sermon was a keynote address by Brian Blunt, two of the biblical scholars I had great admiration for. So I was nervous about that before I got there. And then when I walked into East Liberty Presbyterian (laughs) Church, I found myself in this room that was unlike any Presbyterian church I'd ever been in because it is a literally a cathedral Mm -hmm. with that huge marble a pulpit that you walk seven steps up into mm-hmm. and has the big wooden <laughs> preacher snuffer sounding board above it. And it was a very intimidating place to preach. Mm-hmm. I survived. <laughs> I like that story because that's a pulpit that I looked at, you know, as I imagine being a preacher. So I like yeah. hearing about you preaching in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, what's your hope? So the summer, right, we're preaching through these um, suggestions that members of the congregation have made um, about what they want to hear um, over the summer in preaching. And so what's your hope for us as we, as all of us, you know, sort of step into that pulpit and look down the sanctuary at that camera and imagine the congregation um, behind it. Um, What's your hope um, that we'll get out of this series this summer? Well, uh, I have been grateful for the number of people who responded to that request. I thought that while we were isolated from each other, and we all agreed about this at a staff meeting, Mm -hmm. that um, it would be a way to engage the congregation, to feel like they had an input in, in what we would um, be addressing from the pulpit over the course of the summer. And um, as I said in that invitation, typically in the summer there's a multiplicity of voices that are heard from our pulpit, which I think is a wonderful thing. As I take time off and all, all of us have opportunity to uh, fill the pulpit for a few weeks, the questions that came out of the congregation were in many ways um, all over the place, mm-hmm. and then in many ways all seemed to be connected in one way or another to um, what we're living through right now. Mm-hmm. And um, 
a, a number of people um, suggested particular passages of scripture or particular teachings of Jesus. And as I sorted through the more than 60 um, suggestions that we have 14 weeks to address, what I realized is that many of them could be clustered together around certain themes Mm -hmm. and that the themes could also be located within one of the particular gospels. And we landed on the gospel of Matthew because uh, many of the suggestions were sort of didactic in nature. What, a, what does the Bible tell us about how to pray? Um, what does the Bible tell us about matters of uh, uh, peace and violence and, and themes such as that? Um, my hope is that by choosing uh, the one gospel... To, to link these suggestions together, that while there are different voices uh, filling the pulpit from week after week, that there will also be a sense of continuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's continuity in that these questions came from the congregation where people live. Uh, there will be a diversity of voices as all of us uh, speak to some of these questions over the course of the summer, but that they will also have find themselves a, um, in a continuous motion through the Gospel of Matthew as we give thought um, and converse with the questions that came our way. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be good. And it'll be good to uh, look forward to a time when we're back together and preaching uh, with one another, hopefully soon. So thank you, Agnes. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking about it.